Hey, well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. All of you know me, <laughs> and some of you might know Dr. Rick Hansen, who is sitting across from me on the screen over there via all this great technology, Zoom, uh, for Inside Personal Growth. Rick, good afternoon to you. How are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm thoroughly psyched, A, to hang out with you again, Greg. It's been too long, and B, to explore neurodharma. Oh, yeah. You know, I was telling Rick how I got here, ladies and gentlemen, and I was at a meditation retreat on the Orcas Island and a lady was on the pathway and she flipped Rick's book up and said, I'm reading this book and I'm not going to go hike because I'm going to finish reading the book. And I was right. like, well, that was a sign to actually have Rick back on the show. So thanks for yeah. being on. Well, let my listeners know a bit about you. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, a senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and New York Times bestselling author. He has seven books that have been published in 31 languages, in call, including Making Great Relationships, Neurodharma, the one that we're going to be speaking about, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, Just One Thing, Buddha's Brain, Mother Nature, and the list goes on. Uh, he's also the founder of the Global Compassion Coalition and the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, as well as co-host of Being Well podcast, which has been downloaded over 9 million times. His free newsletters are, are have over 250,000 subscribers and his online programs of scholarships available for those with financial leads, needs. He lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, Harvard, an expert on positive neuroplasticity. His work's been featured on CBS, NPR, and BBC and other major networks. He began meditating in 74 and is taught in meditation centers worldwide. And I was going to tell him, and he lives uh, in Northern California, uh, San Rafael, with his two adult children. And he loves the wilderness and taking breaks from email. Yes, sir. <laughs> and I was actually working with Richie Davidson on a project in Wisconsin. So you can uh, relate. Um, but Rick, let's kind of start this out at the foundation. Yeah. Neuro and Dharma. Right. People don't think of that. Right. <laughs> they don't think of those two words together, probably. Yeah. Um, for our listeners who are probably unfamiliar, maybe not with the term Dharma, but the term that you've mm -hmm. brought two words together here and brought them together. Um, what is it to you and what does it mean? And what should our listeners kind of take away from that? Yeah. So the word Dharma or Dhamma uh, in some of the really ancient languages comes to us through India. And it can, might seem like a fancy word. It means essentially whatever is true and an accurate description of what is true, especially one that is useful. So that's what that term means. And for me, when I put together neuro and dharma, um, it's basically because we can know ourselves in two ways. From the inside out, based on our feelings and thoughts, hopes and sorrows, which are not tangible. You cannot weigh a feeling. All right. We can also know ourselves through modern science increasingly from the outside in, in terms of the operation of our body and our nervous system that moment by moment by moment is constructing our stream of consciousness. And neurodharma is the intersection of those two ways of knowing yourself, which is really interesting and is full of useful tools that we can use to 
use our mind to change our brains to change our minds for the better. Well, and that includes, you know, happiness. And I just had Justin Kennedy on here who started the, uh, a center for neuroplasticity um, and it's worldwide, but he's out of Switzerland and you're a lot of people, you know, they hear this word neuroscience, neuroplasticity. Mm. Um, they know about the right hemisphere and left hemisphere of the brain. They know maybe about the frontal lobe and all these kind of things that we talk about. But your book beautifully kind of marries this ancient wisdom with a new science. That's right. And what motivated you to explore the intersection, especially yeah. concerning human happiness? Because you've had other books on happiness. Uh, and happiness seems to be a plug-in for you. And I right. think for all these thousands of listeners we have, it's a plug-in for them too. Where They're seeking it. They don't always find it but they're constantly seeking it. What would you advice would you provide? That's a great question. So uh, for me, there's a range. So I'm a longtime therapist. I'm also a person who's grappled with a lot of unhappiness actually. And so if you imagine the, the range from minus 10 to plus 10, um, it's really important to move, get your nose above the waterline. If you're chronically anxious or angry, or distractible, or sad, or feeling inadequate, that really wears on a person. And there's a place for addressing that, certainly. But at the point that people start to get their nose above the waterline, and they start being able to stabilize their well-being at a plus one, and then we start to consider what are the full opportunities available to us in this human life, we look then to the people in the traditions around the world, all kinds of traditions, uh, some of them famous, most of them not, who have gone as far as you can possibly go in human potential. And what I think then we can do is start to reverse engineer what's involved in being uh, someone who's awakened, enlightened, or pretty darn close to it. What's the process that gets us there? And so what the book is about is seven qualities that we find in people that are fully awakened around the world in all these traditions um, and are available to each one of us as well, these seven qualities, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. And the book's essentially about the development of these seven qualities in whatever your own personal path of awakening is by harnessing the powerful technology in effect, the inner technology that uh, combines the best of the contemplative traditions with the latest brain science. Yeah. And, and, you know, many of my listeners know that I've worked with Dr. Brian Allman and Kaiser, and he's basically been the one with Dr. Fuetti that came up with the ACE studies, um, adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I mentioned that is because in seeking, whether you're Eastern tradition, but in seeking this, he went to India and asked all the masters, you know, what is enlightenment? And they said, it's 100% acceptance of self. Uh, no matter how much you want to basically make it more than what it is, because you think there's some secret formula, uh, in essence, that is. And in these seven practices of the highest happiness, you're saying highest happiness, um, could you touch on them? what those seven practices are 
and how my listeners actually might utilize them mm -hmm. to actually find what I'm saying here is enlightenment or happiness, which would be 100% acceptance of self. Mm, right. So before I do that, let me just kind of lay a foundation partly related to what you said about 100% acceptance of self. So um, traditionally, it's understood that the path of practice is like a cart with two wheels. And one of those wheels is the track, and it, one of those wheels follows the track of gradual development. So in gradual development, you gradually let go of trauma material. You gradually disengage from addictions. You gradually uh, you know, release stuff you learned in your childhood, like I did, that's really contracted and kind of neurotic and not good for other people or yourself. You, you let that go, and also you cultivate you develop qualities such as mindfulness, uh, lovingness, uh, emotional balance, uh, a sense of self-acceptance and wholeness. You cultivate the ability to live in the present while also feeling connected to everything on the edge of timelessness. Right there I named the seven topics of the book, which I'll unpack you in did. a second ago. You, yeah. you did. You did yeah. a good job of that in one sentence. So that's one track. Alongside that track, though, is another track, which is in a way the, the more profound of the two tracks, which is to gradually inhabit and uncover your true nature already, what's already always been true in your underlying goodness, your underlying lovingness, your underlying wakefulness, uh, that for those who relate to it in this way, which I do, uh, that underlying nature gradually uh, or in, at its, in its depths is rested in the deepest uh, reality of all uh, that can increasingly shine through a person who's more and more transparent to it. So two tracks in my own life and career. As an unhappy, neurotic guy, uh, I focused mainly on the first track until about 10 years ago, and increasingly that second track, the process of gradually uncovering and coming home to what's always true has become more central for me. But both are really important. Uh, and so with that caveat, yeah, if just think about well, people- Well, but I like how you explained it, you know, between two tracks. Yeah. It's, um, it's uh, both. It is because I would agree on the one track, you're slowly letting go yeah. of what whatever you had that you said was neurotic. Um, yeah. You know, in Bruce Lipton's case, it was he could, you know, he never saw his parents embrace or um, or give them each other a kiss. And so literally he waited till he was 50 to marry, Yeah, you know, because he couldn't find love because he didn't have love in his family right yeah so i mean it's thing those are the programs that get instilled into that subconscious right yeah. that are literally there reprogramming over that are keeping us from having things that we deserve in life yeah uh but until we reprogram them we don't have to we i mean it, it doesn't run you don't you're not born a baby yeah uh, with all this hardwired programming right mm -hmm. agreed yeah, uh, it happens over time. And, you know, go back to these seven for a minute, because you mm -hmm. went through them really fast. Yeah. So I'd like you to like unpack them just a little bit, because yeah. I think it's really important. For me, it's such good news that no matter what our past has been, we can always heal a little 
grow a little and develop a little in every day. That is so hopeful. So what is it that we're developing, right? One thing we can develop is greater steadiness of mind, greater ongoing real-time mindfulness um, with a kind of depth of presence. That's the first of the seven practices of awakening, steadiness of mind, steadying your mind, rather than being jumpy and distractible. The second, very much so, is opening the heart. Lovingness, not lovingness in which you get victimized or mistreated by others. Uh, part of that lovingness includes being on your own side. Uh, compassion for yourself, friendliness toward yourself, encouragement toward yourself, that's part of that opening heart. Third, uh, you see throughout the traditions and in everyday life, equanimity. Emotional balance, which means increasingly uh, getting off the, the wheel of drivenness. You still have desires that are healthy and beneficial, but you're more and more at peace with whatever happens. Mm -hmm. And a key to that, grounded in our biological evolution, is to, is to increasingly rest in a sense of fullness and balance already so that you're not coming from scarcity and deficit. Your, your, your goals, your aspirations, your self-actualization can come from a sense of fullness already. So those first three, steadiness, lovingness, and fullness, they come together, and you can kind of feel them. They're, they're pretty down to earth. The next three are a little uh, subtler, but they're really central. So you're um, saying coming, let me repeat that, yeah. coming from fullness, where on the spectrum in a kind of Eastern philosophy might emptiness play a role in all of that? Because, you know, uh, as you, yeah. you kind of look at that, you're saying I'm coming full right? Yeah. Meaning I, I'm going to say I'm deserving. Yeah. Okay. Um, versus being able to sit in this space with maybe, uh, mm, I'm just going to say nothingness. Yeah. Right. I was, uh, Thomas More was on here recently. We had a long yeah. discussion about the eloquence of silence. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he related in the first story was going to do a book signing and nobody showed up. So there was no one there. It was empty. Empty. E-M-P-T-Y, right? Interestingly, he went home and he had one of the best experiences he'd ever had as a result of having an empty, nobody showing up for his book signing, right? But how many people could have that? Because most people, the brain's going to default to, oh my God, it's a horrible book. Oh mm -hmm. my God, it's this, it's that. The ego is going to go back to that. Could you address that a little bit? Because to me, there's a little bit of a conundrum there. I think that's a great example. So <clears throat> as you probably well know, in the four noble truths or mm -hmm. ennobling truths sketched out by the Buddha, um, the first truth is not suffering. The first truth is the truth of dukkha, which means three things, essentially. Sometimes things are unpleasant. Always pleasant experiences change, they end, and all experiences are insubstantial. They're made of parts that are connected and changing, thus empty of absolute essence, solidity, or identity. That, those are conditions in life. There's no suffering inherent in those three conditions. Suffering happens when we engage the second truth of craving, tanha in Pali. So why do we crave? Craving's the problem. Reality is not the problem. Reality just is what it is, and it includes a lot of beautiful things like enjoying being on your show 
right? Uh, but there is also dukkha. So tanha, craving's a problem. Why do we crave biologically? Bodies crave. Bodies crave and are designed to crave by Mother Nature and 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system. Bodies are designed to crave when something is missing or something is wrong, as the, as the animal perceives, including the human animal. Bruce Lipton is a wonderful example. Not, yeah, it was not Bruce, rather Thomas More. His book, Care of the Soul, I really enjoyed. I got a lot out of. Um, so he walks into that room, which happens to not have any people in it okay, and unlike most people, and probably me, early on as an author, it doesn't land on in an underlying sense of something missing or something yeah. wrong. So right. he doesn't get triggered into craving. Right. It's just a condition that he's dealing with, but he's not triggered in craving. Why? Because he already had an underlying sense of fullness. And it right. didn't hurt that he'd been a monk before that, right? So yeah, and he trained. You know, he, he trained had the training. Had the training yeah. on that. And you know, and yeah. our average person here doesn't have that training to say, "Oh boy, I'm going to show up for a book signing and it's empty." And yeah. oh, I come home and I learn more from it being empty. They'd be, they'd be beating themselves up by the time they got to the hotel room. Yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's the third practice. The third practice is how do we gradually build up psychological resources. Uh, through positive neuroplasticity to meet our needs without going into the red zone about it. Right. And second, how do we repeatedly internalize the felt sense of needs met enough in the moment? You feel safe enough in the moment, satisfied enough in the moment, or connected enough in the moment. Those are our three overarching fundamental needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection as big umbrella terms. And when you have those experiences, slow down and take in the good. Okay, mm -hmm. so those are the first three, right? Steadiness, lovingness, fullness. Seems then like come you got the, four more. <laughs> yeah, then come the next three. The next three. Wholeness, nowness, allness. All right? Wholeness, nowness, allness. Yeah, wholeness involves that sense of accepting yourself fully and gradually opening out to your mind as a whole. So what's unfolding in the moment, what's, what's in the field of consciousness in the moment can be taken as a whole. And when you take things as a whole, um, you stop experiencing inner conflict. You don't feel divided internally. You know, everything is a single whole. And uh, when that happens, it's, and there's good brain science, neuropsychology research on it, people get calmer, they feel more centered, they feel more of themselves, wholeness. Right? Would, you, would you also refer to that? Because some of the listeners, yeah. I'm sure, maybe know, is that got, you know, yeah. it's this non-duality. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, would that be something that might describe that essence or that state? Um, this is a great question. Uh, I find around non-duality that it basically there are three kinds of non-duality, mm -hmm. and I'll name them as I go through right here. Okay. Um, and it gets really confusing when it jumps around. So, one basic fundamental kind of non-duality, the first, is awareness and its objects being one single field. Exactly, yes. Okay. We mm -hmm. haven't yet gotten to God, but that's a good start. All right. Awareness and its objects, one single field, awareness at whole. It's simply there's a sense of unfolding and abiding as a whole in the present, which then takes us to nowness, which is really interesting. How, Based on current brain science, how can you help yourself be here now, really be in the present? And it's interesting that... Um, 
if you're really in the present, uh, the moment, the next moment is appearing. It's endlessly being given to us. So you're living in the moment of creation of new time continuously when you're really in the present, receiving the arising of the present, which is beautiful and extraordinary. And so then we can train so that more and more we're in the present. We're not preoccupied with the past. We're not obsessing about the future. You know, you reflect on the past and you plan for the future in ways that are appropriate, but you're not ruminating. You're not lost in thought about it. That's, that's nowness. Um, and then we move into allness, which is where it starts getting really wild, uh, where you start feeling like you're one with everything. And that's a second kind of non-duality in which there's uh, the, the distinction between self and world, between person and world starts to break down. And it's in, it's in that t territory right there uh, around allness that I do explore in the book the release of the contraction of self, where you start to realize that, oh, experiences of self occur just like experiences of hearing, seeing, touching, and so forth occur. But all those experiences, as you put it, are empty of substance. They're empty of absolute existence. And increasingly, then, you're able to take your own life less personally. And well, easier, to, very easy to intellectualize and a little bit more difficult it. to attain. Yeah. Uh, no matter how many about. years you've yeah. been meditating or what you've yeah. been doing to reach this allness yeah. state, um, I can only remember in all the years that I've been doing it, maybe a couple of three times where I felt one with everything, right? Like literally yeah. allness which is kind of what you're referring to, right? Uh, yes and no. So right off okay. the top, um, you're getting at, I think, uh, what are called self-transcendent experiences. Right. So, yep. Sometimes people call them non-dual experiences. They have this quality that they tend to come on to someone fairly rapidly. The sense of being a separate self falls away and the universe shines forth in radiant perfection. Kind right. I mean, uh, and this is without any aid of a substance or a drug. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Those are actually an object of scientific study because many people report having them and there's more and more plausible neurology of what actually is going on when someone drops into that mode, uh, including such as in Zen with Kensho or Satori, what is happening in the brain. And then based on what we're learning about these kind of like fireworks experiences, how can we apply that to a more ongoing, everyday sense in which more and more you recognize yourself as a local expression of the universe? You start to recognize yourself. There is a body here. This body here is distinct from this microphone here, et cetera, et cetera. And these are just simply waves occurring side by side in the same ocean whose nature is water. And that can be gradually developed even without these breakthrough experiences. And again, the book goes into ways to develop that so that progressively, gradually, um, you're, you're more and more rested in that sense of a, of a soft uh, boundary between you and the world um, and less, less sense of ego or taking things personally. Well, in your work at the Greater Good Center, you've done lots of research but I, and I'm and I want to go to this neurology part um yeah. in the research that you've done did you find any surprising overlaps between these ancient 
practices, which we're talking about yeah. Eastern philosophy practices, uh-huh. and with the latest neurosciences and revealing what it revealed about the brain. I'll give you two examples that for me are three actually that are super useful. Okay. And um, then maybe we'll get to the seventh practice, which is the ultimate timelessness. You we, know, will. That's the, <laughs> we will. That's the, that's the third and ultimate kind of non-duality. Uh, yeah. So a couple of things here, and people can do it right now if they want to. Uh, as soon as you start to tune into the internal sensations in your body, and, you, and if you can just be with them rather than getting alarmed about some pain inside you, like the sense of cool, cool air flowing in as you inhale and slightly warmer air flowing out as you exhale, you know, the, the chest rising and falling, the internal sensations of breathing, that draws on a part of your brain called the insula, which is on, there are two of them, on the inside of the temporal lobes on both sides of your brain. And when you are engaging the insula, which is the basis for interoception, tuning in, that acts like a circuit breaker and turns off activity in the default mode network, uh, which is in the midline, slightly toward the rear and spreading, which is active when we're ruminating or engaging in mental time travel, worrying about the past, you know, worrying about the future, right? Um, and so just that alone, that simple process of tracking internal sensations brings you into the present, reduces the sense of self, the self-contraction, and stops negative rumination. Wow, just like that. Now throughout history, people have talked about tune into your breath, blah, blah. Now we know more and more why it actually works. Right, well, so you did wanna get to the seventh one, which is timelessness. Um, And I'll tell you, go ahead. I'll tell you two others really fast. Okay. okay. Second, people can do it right now as well. If your gaze is close to your body, like you're kind of looking down or just out like at a keyboard, um, that tends to support self-referential perceptual processing. On the other hand, you could do it right now. If you lift your gaze and you lift it to the horizon line, that starts engaging other circuits in your brain that open out into things as a whole, which also bring you into the present, disrupts mental time travel, travel, disrupts self-referential obsessing me, myself, and I, right? And brings you more in the sense of openness uh, with everything. Bingo, just that right there. So you see it traditionally like sky gazing or looking out the horizon, examining the heavens, just that. Uh, itself has huge beneficial neurological effects. That's pretty darn cool. Yeah, well, the brain dump and daydreaming too. You know, it's like getting everything out of your brain because we used to call it the monkey mind, right? It's still referred to as the monkey mind, but that's one of the things, right? I mean, I for me, that's a practice that I like to to work on myself. Yeah, if it works for you. So just that alone, the idea of lifting your gaze, a sense of things as a whole mm-hmm. uh, that has an immediate effect that reduces your stress, reduces your self-contraction, brings you into the present. More and more, we're understanding why that works. Well, I also know that many of the people listening, there's they to stay consistent in their practices is a hard thing to do, yeah. right? I went up to do the meditation retreat because it was a reboot for me. 
You know, yeah. it's like you got to get to go do the reboot. And to be in this mindfulness field of meditation really did reboot me. But based on the insights from neurodharma, how could one foster some lasting changes in these neural pathways? Because mm. we're all looking for ways you talked about cravings. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, we're always kind of playing this game between what our body wants to do and our mind wants to do and what could be so much better for us mm -hmm. uh, as a human soul living on this planet to have more understanding, have more compassion, have more peace in our life. Yeah. Yet we always kind of seem to be, I wouldn't say always, but we're frequently kind of at odds with that because we're in a hurry we you know we've got these always on computers we've got these notifications on our cell phones we have cars that have big huge screens in them now that are trying to navigate us and move us around and whatever and and because of all that i think it's really changed the neural pathways in our brain mm. any yeah, thoughts on that <laughs> Well, yeah, the brain's designed to be changed by our, our experiences, especially if they're negative and involve other people and happen when we're young. So we're designed to be changed and affected. And one of the takeaways for me from all of the background I have is to, is to appreciate how vulnerable we are and to really focus on being a good friend to myself, which includes what is my attention resting on? There's a traditional saying, your mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon. Well, what has our mind been resting on for the last five hours, 10 hours, right? And that's what takes its shape. So one of the huge takeaways has to do with my material on taking in the good. And people can look up a paper I published called Learning to Learn from Positive Experiences. It's really about the importance of, for me, three things essentially. One, deal with the bad, for sure. Whether, whatever it might be, your own health issue, the fact that you need to find a way to make a little more money, global warming, the person who's mad at you that's sitting across from your dining room table, uh, deal with the bad. Second, turn to what is good. Not to avoid the bad, but to grow strengths to deal with the bad and for the sake of the good altogether. And then third, take in the good. When you turn toward an experience of steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, and timelessness. When you have those experiences, slow down to receive them into yourself. I mean, we've known a number of, Greg, you and I both have known a lot of people who've had really cool spiritual insights. They've had really cool spiritual experiences. They're mostly the same. They're kind of about as unhappy and pressured and stressed you know, and unskillful with others as they've ever been because they did not learn from those experiences. So that's one of the huge takeaways. When you're experiencing something useful, slow down, be a friend to yourself, bring a big spoon and gobble it up into yourself. Well, you know, you've previously written about resilience. And I think, you know, in the Neurodharma book, um, how does it kind of build? Because you look at your yeah. books, many of them build on one another. You well, know, it's right. like it, it, there's this, this book about resilience, this book about happiness, uh, just one uh, the relationship yeah. book. Yeah. And now we're talking about neurodharma. So yeah. based on these, uh, this information, which you're mm -hmm. consistently studying, yeah. what are these principles around resilience? I know I did work with Mayo Clinic 
we had Dr. Smoot on and he did mm -hmm. these videos around the resiliency and in the workplace, it's really valuable, right? Oh yeah. Uh, to become more resilient. What would it be like for some listeners out there that are right now, they don't mm -hmm. feel very resilient. They feel kind of mm -hmm. beat up. Yeah. Well, it's great. And one of the things that's awesome, if you look at people who are kind of pretty far along, like the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, bless his memory, people in other traditions too, they're very resilient, right? They get stronger uh, through their training, through their practices. And so these seven qualities, if you think about them, they really help people be resilient. Um, one thing that I've seen, I would say is really central is to get on your own side. A lot of people are not on their own side. They're not for themselves. They're a harsh critic. And to find a way to um, shift from that inner critic to an inner guide, like right there, super useful. Second, calm your body. It's bodies that freak out. Bodies get anxious. Bodies get mad. Bodies get addicted. Not suppress your body, but calm your body. You know, train a little bit in relaxation. Train in centering. Find things that are grounding. Grounding. That's absolutely foundational for resilience. I, I speak as a guy who's been in the serious trenches for a 50-year career. How um, do you How do you yeah. actually help people when they're looking at their um, nervous system? You know, because yeah. we get chemical releases from this. Sure. You get inflammation from this. You have all yeah. kinds of problems. You get chronic pain from it. Oh, yeah. And it's really about learning how to, I wouldn't say control, because you're never going to control your nervous system. Mm -hmm. But at, at some point, working with it, you've actually studied this. You've been working mm -hmm. on this for yeah. years. What would you tell somebody today who's anxious, mm -hmm. angry, upset, sure, uh, and is looking for ways to really calm <clears throat> this nervous system? Yeah. First step is to step back from it and be with it rather than be hijacked by it classic mindfulness. It's the foundational step, but like the first step, it's often the most important of all. So step back. One way to help yourself step back is to name it. Name it to tame it, as the saying puts it. That's that. Second, obviously deal with whatever conditions in your life are making you pissed off or nervous or unsettled or feeling not very good about yourself. That's really important. Nothing we're saying here replaces appropriate action, virtuous action in the world. Okay. Third, this one's so huge, Greg. It's the one people don't do. Turn toward what is the opposite. Turn toward what is the medicine or the compensation for that. So for example, you're anxious. What are key psychological experiences you can turn toward that are strengths for feeling anxious? I'll list just a few. One, is to be able to slow down and calm your body. A calmer body is a less anxious person, okay? Second, observe the direct fact when it's true, as it usually is, that you're basically all right right now. Just that, and let the reassurance of that settle in. Anxiety is about the future. Notice that in the present, you're basically all right right now. You can still be vigilant, you can still plan for the future, you can take threats into account, but in the moment, you're basically okay. Right. Third, really huge experiences of connections with others. We're scared monkeys. We're tribal animals. Uh, exile in the Serengeti was a death sentence. So it's crucially important to look for the felt sense of connections with others, not just what you're receiving, but what you're giving. 
you know, looking to see what's good in other people, finding friendliness toward them as appropriate, finding those you can be, you know, kind and loving toward. Those three things right there, calming the body, recognizing when you're all right, as you are much of the time, and feeling connected, that will help a person become less anxious. And then when you're having those experiences, like I was saying before, learn from them. Slow down for a breath or longer to keep the neurons firing together so they can start wiring together. Feel the experience in your body. So it's not just a concept, but it's in your body. You feel reassured because you're noticing you're all right right now, let's say. And then third, notice what feels good about it. You know, what feels enjoyable or wholesome or meaningful about, for example, uh, feeling connected with other people. Uh, and as you do that, literally, you will be changing your brain and you will be hardwiring these inner strengths into your own body so that you can cope better with feelings of anxiety. Yeah, and I think it's this whole reprogramming process, I remember Bruce saying, you know, in the theta state, you know, just before we go to sleep, what are we actually repeating to ourselves? And I think there's a, there's a really big truth to this. In other words, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to program your mind with crap yeah. and then go lay down and sleep, and then your subconscious mind is going to be programmed with that, you're only going to exacerbate these uh, crazy feelings that you already have. But with the technological advances and tools like neuro implants, advanced meditation yeah. apps, how do you see the future of really kind of this personal growth and spiritual practices evolving because, you know, I just told you before we came on that, you know, I went to Wisconsin with Richie Davidson and been working with the Dalai Lama and has this mindfulness meditation app. Yeah. But the challenge is, is actually how to get people engaged in it. There's so many of these apps and keeping them engaged in it to want to do it. Do you have any simple uh, ideas for our listeners um, it, there's, there's so many of these apps now. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, there's hundreds and hundreds of apps that people can download for their iPhone yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a line about what's the most valuable exercise. It's the one you will actually do. Right. <laughs> and, um, so I think what's really important is to find a meditative practice that you'll actually do. And the ones we actually do feel good. They're juicy, they're meaningful, they're alive. And sometimes we need to change them over time. Now, if an app helps you do that in a regular way, that's great. Like Insight Timer will show you who else is meditating worldwide. Great stuff. Uh, Sam Harris has a whole program, 10% Happier. You know, others like that, Calm. You know, the list, the list goes on, definitely. And my attitude about it as a guy who was trained traditionally um, and teaches meditation routinely. I have a regular Wednesday night uh, thing that's freely available to anybody. Uh, you can find out more about it on my website. Uh, I myself am very open to technology. I think great. And, you know, neurofeedback, uh, Holosync. Well, you're, you're saying if the tool works for you, yeah. use the tool. And if it yeah. doesn't, then find a different way and keep yeah. seeking to find something yeah. until yeah. you do. But I'll say, yeah. if I could add this, I know we're going to finish in a second, but I really want to add this if I could, which is just this. I think a lot of people, they quit too soon. You know, I've been at this a long time. I think it's made me nicer, but it's made me blunter. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, don't claim for themselves the upper reaches of human potential. They don't give themselves the gift 
without stressing about it, hey, how far can you actually go in this life? Your one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver put it. How far can you actually go? Why not go for it, right? What for you is the calling of your heart? For me, the fundamental meditation is to rest your mind on what calls your heart. What's that calling of your heart for the highest happiness, right? For just fundamental restedness and the ultimate ground of reality. Does your heart call you in that direction? Listen to that calling. And on the basis of that calling, it may be appropriate to commit 10 minutes a day to some kind of contemplative practice. Maybe bring your mind back to your practice a handful of times every day on top of whatever you do each day that's, that's more formal and grounding. Um, but give yourself the gift of almost like imagination without stressing about, you know, the heaven realms and becoming a saint and all that. Why not? I, I, the great teachers, all of them, my book starts out, as you know, and I draw my background in the mountains uh, with, with friends who would turn uh, toward me higher up on the trail or higher up on the rock face as we were climbing it. Um, they would beckon me onward. In much the same way, all the great teachers, all the great saints and sages, basically they're, they're a little farther up the mountain the mountain of awakening, okay, and they're turning toward us with a gentle smile and a beckoning hand saying, come join me, come on, keep going. And to me, well, that's the spirit a, of the book. There's a lot to be said for that, Rick. You know, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I just finished co-authoring a book called The Precipice of Life, mm. Life Lessons Learned from the Mountaineer's Edge. And you were talking about mountains. Uh, yeah. But what I got to do and part of it was interview 23 people uh, who basically said that if you're not living on the edge or facing death, you're not living life. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll say it repeated itself because these people did the highest seven summits in the world, right? It was yeah. it, this wasn't just regular going up some regular pathway someplace. This was, yeah. you know, Mount Everest and Vincent and all kinds of places that they did. And I learned a lot from yeah. those mountain climbers cool. and persistence and Sherpas and the lessons that you learn and carrying your gear and all yeah. of the, the, the thing lessons you can, but for those who are kind of inspired by our conversation and want to dive deeper into your practices uh, to find happiness, higher mm -hmm. levels of happiness. You said you've dealt with this. A lot of your own life was mm -hmm. being unhappy. Yeah. Um, what first steps or practices would you recommend uh, after they finish reading your book? Uh -huh. uh, Neurodharma. And they're looking for resources. So I'm going to say the biggest resources is his website. And that is Rick Hansen. And that's spelled H-A-N-S-O-N. We'll have it.net. We yeah. will have a link to that. But you go yeah. there. There's all kinds of hypertext links on his website and things for, for my listeners to find uh, that they wouldn't find anywhere else. So again, I'm going to repeat it. It's Rick Hansen, H-A-N-S-O-N.net. He also just told you that he's leading a meditation on Wednesday evenings, and I'm sure he'd love people to reach out and join him on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, is that where you're doing it? That's Zoom right. Calls? That's right. Okay. Freely offered. Um, you can check out the recordings. You could see information about it on my website. Great. So any parting words for the listeners who are out there like sitting on the end of their chairs going, I like this Rick Hansen guy. I want to know more. Well, that's really kind. Uh, my parting thought is basically go for it while staying grounded, right? And timelessness, the last one, uh, is about honoring the sense that so many great teachers have spoken about 
of a kind of mysterious field of timeless possibility in which the Big Bang universe is actually occurring and unfolding. But if we can become more and more aware of that field of timelessness, what the Buddha called the deathless, the unconditioned, maybe with qualities of awareness and benevolence even embedded in it mysteriously, that's sort of the ultimate refuge. So I just wanted to definitely name that. But otherwise, you know, keep on rocking in the free world, right? Well, I love, I love what sing you're the saying. songs you still can sing, and uh, go to this podcast, Being Well. You'll see it on his website. Check it out. Uh, he and his son Forrest Hansen do that podcast, and that's another podcast with more opportunities for you to do. Plus, he's got uh, courses, right? Yep. So if you want to really dive in and take a course. They're ranging in price from $49 to $450. They're all across the board. With scholarships for anyone who wants one, basically. Great, great. Yeah. So I am going to, uh, uh, again, go to his website. Check all of this out. It's an opportunity for you to learn more. Rick, namaste to you. Thank you for hey, being inside personal growth. Thanks for spending your time with my listeners and imparting the wisdom around neurodharma. Um, something that when I saw the book, I was like, yes, let's go do neurodharma. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.